Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J.D. Osborne, and that is Chris Sagnesum. Chris, you're back. I am, David. I'm I'm back in my spaceship, uh, and I'm very grateful on multiple levels. It was a real bitch of a drive home uh, in really weird weather, and it's kind of weird here, but I'm enjoying it. It's it's sort of it's cool and mysterious. Um, Not at all what I expected, but it was a big uh, almost six weeks. I was gone. Uh, The art exhibit was. Uh, I think quite a big success, although, you know, you always want more. And there are certainly some things I definitely wanted more of. Um, And I don't think sales actually heads that list, but it was big on the family front, big on the uh, friend front, the love front, uh, the art in transit front, lots of photography, lots of video. But I am I am damn glad to be home and grateful. (laughs) <laughs> I know that feeling pretty much every trip that I go on, including the recent one that I took to Las Vegas, I always feel nothing but grateful to be back in my own bed, surrounded by my own smells <laughs> and stuff and yeah. books, you know? I mean, it's just, it's really nice. Taking trips is cool. Going on adventures is cool. And what you did in particular was really cool. This kind of artistic cultural anthropology mission that you've been on for the past month. But yeah, I can already tell that you're back in your element. Yeah. You know, I just, it was a real craving to get home. I pushed it hard. I was pushing hard and I, I really, I, I hit North Vegas last night and I was thinking, Oh dear, you know, it was, the, the, it was well and truly dark, lots of traffic because of many events, but it felt really good to get home. And I think, you know, because, uh, well, creative people, I think, are using their home as a kind of studio workshop, magical exploration. Uh, well, I, I think of my home as a spaceship for, for good reason. Um, there are a lot of, lot of signs of that. And it is hard to, to be away from that. I, I reached a saturation point with my uh, voice memo dictation. I was, I was kind of, I think I really worked that. I've, I hit my photographic limit and all of the other personal stuff, which is so important. Of course, my mother's 95 as listeners know, and that was a good visit. I had a good hike with my sister on Camino Island, which I highly recommend for people who, and I'm struggling, David, to find some things to recommend about the, uh, what is called Seattle now, even though it is so very beautiful at points, but it was an enormous uh, emotional expedition. So how much money would it take to get you to live in Seattle? Wow. That is a very, very good and practical question. (laughs) <laughs> about three million. Three million? Yeah. Easily. Yeah. Yeah. That's about I what be, I would need. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would be, I, I I that would be kind of my baseline, honestly. Um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because that would you know allow me the the escapes that I would need. The uh there are some beautiful places to live, of course, mm-hmm. but none of that environment, even the leafy green 
nicest suburbs with beautiful craftsman homes or the clinker brick. There are some distinctive architectural styles. You know, I'm not even sure then, and I've got some <laughs> great for one year. For one year. Well, okay, it would be it would be uh, love, romance, and uh, sex that would get me there more than the money. I think, mm. um, but I found it very conflicted, and I just I nowhere did I could I turn that I had, and that's saying a lot because I had phenomenal weather up until my very final day. Uh, and one day when I when I first arrived, but I, I you know some places just don't sit with you, mm -hmm. you know. Um, mm -hmm. And I think if you have a a lot of layers of past, then right. it's not really fair. You're not navigating. The psychogeography isn't the same as you would, you know. Um, I mean, say Nashville for me. I I have. I'm sure there are a lot of pros and cons. I don't have have any personal history. I have a lot of cultural history and interest, you know, connections, but no, I'm not right. walking down the street going, oh my God, that was the bar that that X happened in, you know, for mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm moving back to my hometown. I avoided it for a really long time, but the pros just outweigh the cons. And once I made the decision to move back. We haven't done it yet, but once I made that decision, I started getting oddly hyper creative and I started feeling more in tune. And I think that we get sold a bill of goods about cool areas of the country. Now there are places, like you said, about Seattle that are very pretty, that have great restaurants, diverse populations, which ties into the great restaurants thing and culture. You know, I'm thinking of LA or New York, these kind of centers for cultural production. So people want to move out of their quote unquote, boring hometowns. But we started this show with psychogeography of yeah. the, the neighbor, the neighborhoods that I live in. And I think for better or for worse, without necessarily saying that people should stay in their hometowns. I also think people shouldn't run away from them and avoid them for too long oh okay well that you know that's very close to uh the bone in the heart of all of my uh fiction writing i think that war between home and escape and i think that is one of the great american themes mm -hmm. uh, i think certainly it's, it's a great theme of uh the 20th century and I don't think mm -hmm. you can say the same of, of European literature or English literature in the same way. Tell me, does that mean you're you're going to Lawton? Is Correct. That... Okay. Yes. Yeah. The plan is to move in August. The rents that we've seen in Lawton, surprisingly enough, are pretty much the same as in Oklahoma City. I thought they'd be a little bit cheaper, but unless I want to live in neighborhoods that I know aren't good because I've spent many yeah, right. Sleep, sleepless weeks in those neighborhoods. Um, so the the money issue is not necessarily the point. The point is, is that Rios's mother and my mother both live there, and yeah. her sister lives on a farm. I remember I sent you that picture of Gus yeah. fascinated with an excavator. Um, that's her sister who lives there, out a little bit out into the country, in a town called Faxon. But um, I want Gus to be around his cousins. 
and I want extended family to take a little bit of the of the weight off of it. Sure, sure. I understand that. Well, that makes really good sense. I uh, wow, another move. I hope that that I think for continuity's sake, because you've moved a fair bit, really, in kind of in, in the same state. So mm-hmm. I hope that that you 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 find something that will really work for all three of you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's that's what I'm hoping too. I don't really. It's it is that tension between, like you said, home and escape. Um, Rios in particular is she's a big mover. Her her mother is a big mover too. Her mother has moved three times in the same town in as many years, just selling a house and getting a new one, selling a house and getting a new one. So there's a little bit of that involved. And also, you know, definitely a kind of similar issue to people on Tinder who can't settle down. You know, you're kind of, you're looking like, where's the ideal place? Where's the ideal place? But I think that, um, you know, I grew up in a military family. Dad was in the army and we moved all the time then too. So moving also just kind of gets into your blood a little bit. You start feeling like you have to uproot and change spaces. I, I understand that for sure. I mean, I really do. I'm, 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 I'm weird in that way because I have had so much wanderlust and uh, also just fleeing places in the dark of night and all sorts of, of, you know, shenanigans and scenarios. But I also am a, a my bur- uh, horoscope sign is cancer. So I'm, I'm a homebody too. So it's, it's really been quite an agonizing uh <laughs> you know, tension to bridge in many ways, but I think it's been really important. Um, It does change, I think, though, with, and you'd have felt this as a military brat, as they call them, uh, that once kids start going to school, yeah, I I think real continuity is important unless there's some other you know, reason, you know, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well, there are reasons and, and, and everybody adapts in the end to, you know, what they, their life experiences. But if you can get some continuity and guesses school life and mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. those, for me, that elementary school group that I first knew, I mean, it's only in the last year and a half that I've started to really distance myself and get a real sort of realistic perspective on that because it was enormously dreamlike, very powerful mm-hmm. because of that, but, you know, misinformed, but it, it led me on. I, I don't, I think I, I mentioned some of those uh, discoveries I made in one of the past episodes, but you really, I, I just see how much deep structure in, in me was created by those neighbors, so to speak, my class, yeah. my, my mm-hmm. cohort peer group, you know, and you're going to have that wherever you move to, but I'm talking about a, a kind of group of people who become archetypal. And I yeah. think you do have to give a kid enough time somewhere yep. to have that, archetypal thing kick in yep i agree i think that mom and dad got divorced when i was 13 or 14 and that's when we at that point we had already been living in lawton since i was 12 
So from 12 all the way through high school, uh, we lived in the same house for the most part. And um, I have the friends that I had then are still my friends today. I saw some, as a matter of fact, because last weekend I went to go do a reading um, down in Norman, Oklahoma, where one of my buddies lives. It's very bizarre. They had a, a, a noise band playing while I was reading. And if not for the Lost Explorers, Chris Sacknesson, two track mind skills that I had developed, I don't, I don't know if I could have focused on my performance while it sounded like I was in the Aphex Twins head, you know? Right. Um, but those friends are, st- are still friends today. I, and I agree with you. I think that the archetype of the, of the kid who just needs to get out of his hometown you know, I have to get out of here. I have to, that's really important to have. And I would contrast that with some friends of mine who grew up, say, in New York City or Baltimore or Los Angeles, and they have no desire to leave. New Yorkers love New York. It's the best city in the world to them. And they don't, a lot of them don't want to go anywhere, you know? So maybe that's a part of it too, kind of a, where you want to you want to have in in Tolkien terms you want to have a shire for your kid yeah. you know yeah. so that they can go on their adventures but always have that shire to to come back to well that's ideal i i do think that in, embedded in what you're saying is one of the great misconceptions or even just in in kind of quantitative you know media speech terms myths of our time that that people are so mobile and and that mm-hmm. think you know that was one of the uh, when I went got involved seriously for a time in trying to find my stepbrother, I, I had dealings with some missing persons experts, and this was kind of before the internet. Real, I mean, one time was was pre internet, really full stop, and then the internet had a long way to go to where it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the message is is that people don't move around as much. People may travel. They make, you know, and I think that the the notion of travel is is, as in a tourist sense. Sure, sure. That's been greatly expanded. We can look at those figures and see how the travel industry has boomed uh, compared to the 19th century. But in point of fact, people don't actually move very far. And many people of all different classes, races, orientations stick pretty close to where they started. and. I think somehow we we don't we don't seem to recognize that despite the obvious truth of it. But the experts mm-hmm. will tell you, and the stats bear it out. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. absolutely. Well, on that note, do you have a band and an after? You had a lot of time in a car. I did, and I, you know, I, I think I going back to our potato road episode remember that where i when i was in Wittemuk and i was doing experiments with what kinds of music would sound you know okay and that i was static i was fixed uh near a, a park in in Winnemucca, nevada well i was out on the road big time for this trip and it struck me that that there's a tremendous amount of american music that really sounds great across a wide range of road travel, road trip experiences to the point where I think it's the number one American genre. I think it brings together a lot 
of very, very different kinds of music, but certainly it's interracial, mm-hmm. uh, crosses those lines. Um, so the name of the band is a real re- a forceful and talent-rich return to American road music, and they call themselves Rumble Strip, you know, mm-hmm. which is a fighting mm-hmm. line, you know, on highways. So if you cross the line on a two-lane road, you, you know, you hear it. And their album is called Abrupt Edge, which is another road mm-hmm. song morning. And these are not dysfunctional, uh, deconstructive musicians. These are really talented, uh, sincere, and idealistic musicians representing an interesting range of songwriting and song crafting traditions from uh, a weird mix of Nirvana and the Allman Brothers or Little Feet, J.J. Kale, uh, Southern Black Blues, and the members of the band represent this sort of hodgepodge. And they are kind of like a road trip just looking at them, but mm. certainly a soundtrack of, of hearing them. And I think that if America is going to find its feet again, which it is is certainly lost in my view, and this trip absolutely confirmed that, um, I think we've got to really dig deep and appreciate the pop culture mythos of the road and travel and the intersection of destinies and the meeting of strangers and love affairs and passing, you know? Um, I mean, there's a hell of a lot to be said for sex in a gas station, you know, restaurant. It doesn't Mm -hmm. sound like a good idea maybe, but, and there's a lot of, of, you know, strange things that, you know, when you pass by a civic event of some kind, there's a lot of wild anthropology, you know, but I really think if we could get back to enjoying and try to see past the Walmartization, uh, just the, the doom and gloom of the cost of gas, the nasty roads falling apart, uh, We've got to get back to the hopefulness of that bend in the highway, you know, that that place somewhere that we may never get to, but we're we're trying to reach, you know. And one of one of my favorite novelists is uh Barry Gifford. And yeah. he does that, he does that very well with his Sailor and Lula and uh Southern Nights is the other one. Uh I've always thought that his short chapters were really readable you just kept turning the pages but he had that open road a lot of his scenes are the main characters eating lunch and just meeting somebody new so he popped in when you said that but he also obviously you know famously his book wild at heart was adapted by david lynch and the two of them share a lot of sensibilities in addition to gifford writing lost highway and so there is obviously that darkness that comes with his books as well violence and you know just evil sociopaths type thing but that spirit that you're talking about feels very giffordian yeah and it's no surprise i think that there is such resonance with lynch and i think to be honest that we've had some great uh as with the musicians i'm thinking of and it, it i i really do think the best american music in a pop sense could be called road music but books whether poetry short stories fiction 
film. I mean, I think that that artists have really risen to the occasion on that. And I, I think we need to rise again. And I think more people who are out on the road need to put down their phones to try to tune back into some master ghost radio signal American sensibility because it's way too fragmented now. And, and I think a lot of people, even in their poignant moments, uh, don't see things holistically. I've got a I could have had 200 uh, interview moments with strangers, whether or not I told them or asked their permission or not. But I still have about um, oh, 75 and they are great characters. They are great moments. You put those together and you've got a very fine postmodern movie um, and they're great storytellers. That's the common link. And wherever I, I met them, I would say to them, I'm a storyteller by trade and you're a great storyteller. Thank you very much. And it was interesting. Very often they were surprised to hear that, you know, they didn't, they don't think of themselves that way. And I think that um, from a teaching perspective and also just being a pretty good stranger myself, um, I think I imparted some hopefulness and, and a new way of seeing themselves because there were some magic moments, man. It was just, and who cares if they're only moments? I'm not saying these people have, you know, that much more in the tank. I don't know. Maybe they do. But I know that they had some musicality and some sense of occult mystery in, in very simple observations that I thought was moving and inspiring and just plain cool. Awesome. Yeah. Um, do you have an aphorism for us? I do. And uh, it, this is going to sound like maybe somebody else, but I'm going to defend this because my whole art exhibit was about psychogeography and map making and navigation. And also the, the really crucial word uh, I think is the most abused word now in my thinking of, of all words in English. I think it's the word that needs the most uh, support uh, and understanding and development so that we really say what we mean. But I'm just, I plopped it in here as is. My aphorism is, hope is a place beyond all maps, which only love can help us reach. I love that. That's great. I am a huge fan, as we've said before on several episodes now, of moving back to this kind of language. Yeah. I think that the word the word hope really got fucked over by the Obama campaign. Yes. <laughs> hope and, and sure. hope and change, you know. Um, uh, so it it has those connotations for American society now, where we don't we don't want to talk about hope anymore. Let's get practical. We got to get practical, Chris. We can't do this hope and change stuff, but I like that you used both hope and love. Another word that I've been using a lot that's been helpful in my own practices is fear and yeah. recognizing it as such, not anxiety, you know, right. not depression, not uh, imposter syndrome, just fear. Fear. Well, this, we're very much on the same page here, David. This is, is a real reinvention, reinvigoration of strong, simple, uh, straight talking language uh, mm -hmm. that has an, enough richness and meaning to it. 
uh, already and nothing that we should we need to apologize for, but then leaves the door open for some really interesting possible improvisations, explanations, deepening mm -hmm. of information. Right. And I mean, for instance, for me, when I when I wrote love there, I thought that was really important because I have I do have something specific in mind, but mm -hmm. and and what I really want is an opportunity to prosecute that and develop it because there have been some impositions of what that word means in my life that mm -hmm. I'm not at all comfortable with. Uh, and certainly not comfortable without further uh, qualification. So, right. right, right. There's a scene in the movie Donnie Darko where a character, a preacher played by Patrick Swayze, is giving a yep. seminar to the, the Jake Gyllenhaal's class. And he goes to a chalkboard and he writes the word love and the word fear. And he gives this whole speech about how everything is either love or it's fear. And the character who we're supposed to identify with, Donnie, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, calls him out for it and says, you know, it's not that simple, man. It's more, you can't break everything down to love and fear. At the end of the film, we find out in a sort of coda to the film that that Patrick Swayze character was a pedophile who gets, who kills himself because He's about to be found out of being in possession of a lot of child pornography. What the movie's saying is that these grifters or these snake oil salesmen, they'll try to sell you on simple words like love and fear. And I go back and I say, okay, let, you know, let's ignore the, the, the pedophile thing for a second. But he's right about the love and fear. He's actually that's correct. That's a great heuristic, I think, to to start with. I do too. And I think it is it and, and the key principle here is to start with. I think that, that it's a little bit of a weird assumption that people make that that's going to just stand. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not going to let that stand. I want to I want to have a really good explanation of what I mean by love in this context. And mm -hmm. I think you know, love and fear are so potent, magical terms that that they want. I mean, that's what they want to do. They create life. They create psychic ex existence because they want to deepen and enrich themselves. Yeah. You know? They're yeah. alive. I think that when you start framing your anxiety as fear, it becomes easier to deal with as well because culturally we've allowed ourselves to accept that it's okay to be anxious or depressed, but nobody wants to be afraid. That makes you sound like a coward. So once you start treating it like fear, then it's something that you can overcome. You, you face your fear, but you don't face your anxiety. We, don't, we haven't come up with a clever I mean, phrase for that. Anxiety just sounds like sweaty polyester to me. <laughs> yeah, it's, it sounds like, yeah, it sounds uh, like whiny, twitchy, OCD, not very, you know, small penis energy. Yeah, that's what it is. That's what it is. And and we we need to get back to much bolder, brighter, sharper lines of, of distinction. And and there's enough shadowy mist and smoke machine and toxic fumes rising from the marsh of culture now. We need to get a little bit more lasery, you know? Mm -hmm. so just get some shit out there that's a little bit clearer. And then, and then you know, the murk will reveal itself in a different way. But yeah, we, we need to get away from what is effectively euphemism as you as euphemism, you right? I exactly. think that and 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 to use another the, a word that you you've introduced into the lost explorer, 
uh, negative vocabulary, bloodlessness. You yeah. know, these are the people oh, yeah. we're, we're opposed to is the bloodless ones or what yeah. I often call the invertebrate people. I love invertebrates. I am not <laughs> in favor of invertebrate humans. Jellyfish people? No. Yeah, I'm I'm with you 100%. What is my imaginative challenge for today? Okay, well, I'm going to give you two choices. You can you can pick a number, okay. uh, a modest size number, or I could roll a dice. Which do you want I to? We'll pick the number three. Okay, that's a good. You know, as we say, three is the magical number worldwide. Why? Because it's more than two and less than four. Okay, you have been given a very strange imaginative challenge by, again, a shadowy figure of enormous resources. So you can draw upon lots of people skills, money skills, whatever you think of within reason, if it meets the the, the rules of physics, let's say, as we know them in our pathetic state right this morning, today, you're involved in an adverse treasure hunt and you are the game administrator. So you need to either, there are a couple of parts to this challenge. You've chosen the number three. So you're going to have to choose three things, three artifacts, if you like, that are capable of being hidden because it's an inverse treasure hunt. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to think about what you tell us about why those three, how you're hiding them, and you're not entirely sure of who you're hiding them for, but you know the one part of the brief you have is that they're very interesting, very capable people, and that if you knew them more fully, you would really feel like spirit intellect mates. So you're playing as the game administrator, you're playing with people of your capability. So what are the objects? Where would I hide them and why? Yeah. And I think along the way, you'll you'll reveal a little bit about the, your, your target audience and maybe how you find them. But I think you can just say that you, you don't have to publicize this, but you're, you're kind of a god. You know, the question is, and this ties in with my big theory of, you know, everything wants to be found. Well, mm-hmm. the corollary of that is everything is hidden in plain sight. But mm-hmm. Deus, you know, absconditus, the hidden God, you know, um, the God who hides things. Well, is that really the right way to think of it? I mean, or is it just we're often just dense and everything is, you know, right in, in front of us. So you've got some Deus absconditus inverse treasure hunt it's a good name for the episode too i'm gonna write that down all right you sent me a text that is becoming tradition on the show i'd like to read it for listeners and there's a lot to pick up here towards the end especially here's the text that chris sent some rambling notes for today and boy are they ever Seattle at siege with itself, America under strain like stressed steel, color screens blur, everything smells like onion rings, 
An enormous fat millipede escapes the bathroom and crawls under the door into the hall of a best Western motel. Endless apps, a way to artificially age people so they'll be more anxious. Engineered obsolescence. Tomorrow's engineering, and much of today's, is done by AI. But what's getting engineered today? Not the roads and transit systems, not police and ER response, not education or healthcare. The grim reality hiding beneath happy retiree talk, the unbearable pathos of near retirees, especially in sales, the poignant truth of senior citizens as supermarket checkers, TV sports as prison exercise, drug for straight drug for strangers in bars, TV sports as junk food. Sunset over the sound versus blood and death downtown, how much infrastructure can degenerate or collapse? The strange informing power of structure with a capital S. To the point where when we really start to look at it, it doesn't seem like the right way to look. David Bohm and the Implicate Order. What if Einstein had to worry about being popular? I particularly like that one. If Einstein <laughs> had, had to go viral. Science has had popularizers, aka explainers. What happens when we run low or people don't care anymore? Evidence. What is manifest? Everything is hidden in plain sight. Expert testimony slash specialists. Living for the photograph. Consider relationships in the light of who takes the photos. I really liked the Einstein having to be popular. I loved uh, the relationships between people taking photos and those who are having their photos taken. But I'm curious what uh, about David Bohm and the Implicate Order? I don't know if we're going too much out of order by bringing that up first, but that I don't know what that is. Oh, okay. Well, I think it's a book that should be added to our reading list, and we should certainly recommend it to listeners. Uh, the late David Bohm it was a major uh, English physicist uh, of the genius category, so he has all of the heavy science credentials, but he certainly uh, merges and, and, and beautifully blurs into the more Mysterian category of the Rupert Sheldrakes and others. Very articulate, uh, sensitive, caring, uh, e Eastern as an Asian philosophy uh, influenced thinker and mm. his idea of the implicate order is a kind of enfolded holism that relates to ideas of like a holographic universe okay. uh, it, yeah. it is a beautifully written book he he does bring uh all of his scientific credentials to it but i think it, it's it's something that um that every intelligent thinking person should should get a hold of if they can. It it's it's a very very uh, lyrical and um, Zen sort of exploration of the distinction between uh, structure and content. Between you know how does that work? It's a real it's a real mind jangle of of what. Stru where structure comes from, how it emerges from within. What, what would that mean if you if you if you said that? And what does it mean, certainly for a high level um, physicist, classically scientifically trained? And I think that's that. It, it was a reminder to me to re revisit that book. 
But I'm really glad you like the idea about Einstein because the thought just, it, it just exploded in my head. I'm sure mm-hmm. that you've thought about as a writer, well, how could I, you know, what does it mean to be popular? You know, and I did have some discussions with my Amazon friends and, you know, my mother always says, why can't you write a bestseller? You know, and there's always <laughs> this sense of, of you know, uh, lowering standards and appealing to the masses and a lot of formulaic kind of nonsense thinking that's never really spelled out as to how you actually do it. Because a lot of those formulas, as you know, and I think our listeners know, they're they're very difficult. You know, they're a legitimate, uh, I mean, you could say formulaic about everything, pop songs, for instance, but that doesn't mean it's not a great pop song within its, its genre sure. idiom. So I think it's it's just a very confusing issue. But Einstein is, you know, the ultimate celebrity scientist of the 20th century, maybe all time. I think he's a face that more people recognize than than anyone else. And it may see him as purely symbolic of being super intelligent. But think what would have happened if he tried to dumb down his ideas, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? Right. I think that... There's two minds of the, there's everything is attributed to Mark Twain. But I heard, <laughs> I heard Mark Twain say, or was reported to have said that the sign of true intelligence is being able to relate something to somebody simply. And I think that's a different thing from dumbing it down. I think that the key distinction here is clarity to talk a little bit more about the formulaic bestseller approach the books that I've been reading recently, I've been getting back into older sci-fi, as you know, Rudy Rucker and William Gibson and Richard Morgan, people like this. And their writing is certainly not dumb. It's in the same vein as, say, Philip K. Dick. I don't, most of his books aren't dumb. No, they're very, very, very sophisticated. But PKD and every author that I mentioned, except for at times Rucker, um, is extremely clear. There's clarity to it. And I think people confuse clarity for dumbing things down, right? Let's leave the tough parts out because mm, people just won't get it. And maybe they won't, but these guys really go for it, but they they say it in such a clear way that I could have read Altered Carbon when I was 15 and I would get it basically, even though there's some pretty trippy stuff going on. Right, but I think that... Uh... Whenever you approach, I mean, we've talked about this from another angle, and I think it's worth going. We have very few popular intellectuals today. We used to have a lot more. We have Neil deGrasse Tyson. Jordan (laughs) Peterson, you know. I mean, there aren't many people who are really connecting with with significant, with what we call mass audiences from Mm -hmm. the view of of intellect art or science or or what have you philosophy um so i mean it's a really strange and disappointing time but the mechanisms in the past have been that it was possible for scientists to work 
And going, you know, certainly back to the really or, the organization of science as an activity of culture, you know, the Royal Society in England, and say Newton is being the ultimate figure of that. I mean, he could really work in a fairly small context of explanation and agreement in order to be accepted as uh, valid. And then the process of explanation to the masses uh, began. But let's face it, that's called education. That's still happening. And I don't think very many people are really up to speed with that. We've moved on past Newtonian mechanics with relativity physics and quantum physics. And yet a lot of people don't really understand Newtonian laws of motion. Right, right. Do you think, say that you have the power to do this? This is one of those prison questions if Chris was in charge of this. Do you think that if you took away people's internet connections, or at the very least limited it to 30 minutes a day, that you could be online or on your phone, or you took away the phones altogether? Do you think that these things would begin to increase again? Because this is a very leading question. You don't have to agree with me, but my contention is that people are certainly moving in a certain direction, but I've shifted my focus from a kind of inherent laziness and and incuriousness to maybe some people are trapped by the technologies that are around them. And they've just, they've been given a life that is, it's too, it's too easy to do what's easy. So they don't want to move outside of that quick dopamine hit or that easy dumbed down version of the thing well first of all and i every aspect of this trip reinforced this on on very very fundamental levels i really i dispute the connection between the phone and the laptop or desktop computer i understand why they are grouped together i understand the phone has borrowed technological capabilities from the laptop and the desktop I get why the phone should be thought of as a computer to some extent. Absolutely. There's no question. It's just a small version of it. But I do know that I see everywhere I turn, everybody's got a phone. Very few people really in proportionate terms have laptops. And Mm -hmm. I think the laptop and the desktop is another way of accessing information that requires a context. You know, you have a desk, you're sitting down, you have a whole lot of things that it changes your use. It changes what you're accessing. It changes your relationship. And I think we need to do away with phones and particularly texting. I think texting may be the most significant, as stupid as this sounds. And this is, I'm, you know, we've talked about, this is not new. I think texting is one of the most alarmingly influential developments, uh, far out of proportion to its technical interest or uh, any of its benefits. I've always been a bad texter. I've never been able to, I'm not a good typer on my phone. I have friends who write portions of their books on their phone. I can't do that. I can't even really, I mean, you text with me all the time. Most of my responses are cool or wow, or, you know, nice. Well, I often, but I create them on my laptop and I text you on my laptop. Oh, okay. Okay. Interesting. So I'm texting you back from my phone and I just don't like doing it. 
Oh no, I completely with you. I I, I only do that because it, people check mm -hmm. their texts more directly. And right. now socially, emails have become a little bit more formal or something. I don't know, but the whole thing is just absolutely uh, ridiculous. You know, mm -hmm. totally mm -hmm. ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I text you, uh, but but I'm not really. I'm only thinking of, uh, well. I should have explained that actually, because there's no way I would create those messages on my phone. I'm not dexterous enough. I don't like I it. I was as wondering much. about that. <laughs> I, I was wondering oh, about no, that. I, I gave I thought, away a secret. I thought, how long is Chris, you know, spending? Doing, oh doing no, thing? no, no! But you understand exactly what I'm doing. I now. do. But yeah. yeah okay. Do. Well. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Oh, okay, that makes a lot more sense. That makes a guess. lot more sense. How do you do that? You put your thing on your that's not for the show that I'll ask you that off mic, but no, that is a really important distinction. So let's clear it back then, then to, if we just got rid of people's phones, what do yeah, you think would I think, happen? I think that that would be sure. There'd be some inconvenient short term, but I think it could only do good. And I yeah. think that it's not the dire thing that it would appear to some people. It might save two generations. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that I think that's totally true. People push back on this all the time because I don't know of anybody who truly enjoys their phone, uh, but some people are addicted to them. In the same, it's the same as cigarettes or whatever. You know, there are people who are addicts who know that it's a problem, but they can't quite get out of it. But I do think that the as a writer, I would love to see people put their phones down and get a little bit smarter and a little bit more into things like reading for obvious reasons. I don't even need to explain why. <laughs> Let me give you just two really simple examples of, of my time in Seattle. And I'm sure it's representative of, of many, many cities. There's nothing specific to uh, that city or the Northwest or the West coast or whatever. Uh, two moments where having a phone was assumed. And I mm -hmm. think that's the biggest assumption that could be made. I think it's when we're talking about diversity and inclusion, I think that that's appalling. But I, uh, I was parking in a parking lot uh, to attend the art walk event night for my art show. And I, I used my credit card at this machine before. Well, the machine is damaged because of all of the junkies and, you know, idiots and just drooling tentacle things that are hanging mm -hmm. out. But there was a little, you know, code thing that you could scan with your phone. Mm -hmm. So that was throwing us all off. And there was this kind of uh, hot art chick who was not quite age appropriate, but not ridiculous. She was in her late 30s and she was trying to help me sort of deal with this. And I thought, look, I, I don't mind being the old person here because this is a stupid system. And it's also <laughs> new because I was just at that parking lot, you know, 48 hours before. Right. Well, nobody could get it working, you know. Mm -hmm. So I got mm -hmm. to uh, chat up this uh, kind of colorful, funky sort of uh, art gal. And I don't know if it worked for her, but I don't think so. Because it led us down a rabbit hole of confirming, you know, it was a transaction and everybody started worrying about their, their details being stolen, but none of the orders went through. So the technical back end of this system wasn't working and there was no alternative. So I got a ticket. Everybody got tickets. It's just 
uh, a total, total mess. Then I was out to dinner with my niece. She took me to a great, great place in the Fremont District of Seattle, which is one of the few I still really like, although it would cost a lot of money to be there. It's it's funky and, and cool. It's, it's great. So, and the, the, it was Red Star Tacos, and it was just outstanding and great value for money. But I like the, the tradition of waiters or servers plopping down menus on the table. No, you had to sort of go to your phone. And I thought, no, wait a minute. You have I've heard of this. Yeah, I've yeah. heard of, I've never I haven't it hasn't made its way to Oklahoma City yet, but I've I've well, heard of don't this. let it because mm-hmm. everything about the place was great. The drinks, the food, the service, everything was fine. But I thought, look, I'm here to have a good time and to have some personal time with someone I don't see very often. I'm not looking at my phone to get the menu. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. I know there are some menus back there. You haven't thrown them all out, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bring it out and put it on the table. And of course, they did that in the end. And uh, I just thought, you know, really, w- what do you gain? Is is that cool? You know, no, it's mm-hmm. not cool. It's stupid. It is stupid. Conversations. <laughs> and so, you know, it was just, I, I'm sick of the enforced use of the phone. I, it, It's no longer, you know, the, the casual and intentional aid and 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 skeleton key to the internet and the world that it was now it's a passport and mm-hmm. I, I, i'm not going to carry it in that way I, i'm just not going to do it right right and you know i have this concern in terms of what's happened with the phone with with ordering off of a menu which is just egregious and like you said stupid it it doesn't make any sense. There's there's no reason to do so. I've heard people tell me stories about bars in New York where people have showed up and tried to order a beer and the bartender has said, oh, you, you get it on your phone. Yeah. And they, and, they, and they say, they say, can I just order it from you? And they say, no, no, you have to go onto your phone. But what I'm worried about is this new Neuralink that uh, Elon Musk has been introducing. And 20 years from now, that being like the phone is now. Do you want to order your tacos? You got to use your Neuralink to do it. Well, here's to flash back to the parking lot issue, though. Here we all are out in the open. Suns, you know, not not quite sunset, but Mm -hmm. and it's an area that is completely fallen prey to violence, drug addiction crazy people it's a place where you need to keep your eyes looking around you you know you don't need to be dicking around with some code and a phone and going oh i have you know here are my credit card details you know it's Mm -hmm. like no like who's Mm -hmm. behind me and i think all of this is is an invitation to this meta world vacuum uh that is just the only reason is so somebody will make some money off it and it has nothing to do with practical delivery of value fun enjoyment exactly and this goes to your other point in the text about how roads are falling apart nothing's being built nobody or nobody's doing anything valuable for society in terms of you know i know construction still happens but large but not at the pace that it needs to account for how many people there are here and 
what you're saying is so true. It's because everybody has become an entrepreneur in their own way. And they want to make that quick buck. And you know, some tech guy came up with the idea. He took it to an angel investor. And they said, that sounds like a great way to make money. We mentioned many episodes ago, the reinvention of the vending machine and how (laughs) you can have a vending machine, but now you do it on your phone, dude. Yeah. Uh, And it's pointless. It's in it just, it's a, you know what the word, this is an overused word, but it's a grift. Yeah, it's, we have a country full of grifters right now, and we need people who just who, who use tried and true methods to make things. This is a huge point, I think. By the way, like we got to go back to just not, you know, trying to maximize your your KPI or um, you know disrupt the the vending machine industry. We what happened to just you know, Hey, I like motorcycles. I'm going to work on motorcycles and that'll be my life. That'll, that'll be entertaining and fulfilling for me to, to build or repair or restore. Uh, you know, I have a friend, a really good friend of mine who has always loved cars and his career is he puts, um, very stylish wraps around people's cars. He makes a shitload of money doing Mm. that too. I mean, it's a very lucrative because you can't have any imperfection no little bubbles, nothing can be on these wraps. But that I've always been very impressed by because then you have other friends who, you know, what do you do? It's, well, I'm a consultant for a bank. And it's like, what do you do? Oh, I put together PowerPoint presentations, which I outsource to the Philippines, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, it's... It's fascinating what you ran down because I think another uh, great theme of of American literature is grifters. And I think mm-hmm. that they come in many different, and I'm not thinking of criminal grifters. I mean, there's obviously, I mean, I think there's a Jim Thompson novel with that title. And we we love con men and David Mamet, and there's a whole, definitely a whole world there. But if we look at it more in terms of the consultant or the thing you need, the legitimate business advantage or the house, the homemakers, special friend uh, or the self-improvement scam. One Mm -hmm. of the things which uh, if people go back to Sinclair Lewis, who um, was uh, a pretty well recognized uh, author, uh, Pulitzer Prize, a pretty serious American writer. Uh, a, a, one of the, the the gentlest alcoholics, as Bennett Cerf said. Bennett Cerf of Randomness said he was the most honorable writer, and was, he was as legitimate and ethical as Dorothy Parker was selfish and unethical, which mm-hmm. I think is an interesting thing to say about someone who died of terminal alcoholism. But a lot of Main Street, Babbitt, a lot of the little, they're not central to what's going on at all, but they're little glimpses at the grift. The, the, and it, a lot mm-hmm. of it, it, wonderful little hints of language that have now been lost. And, and this uh, early advertising, uh, get ahead of the Joneses, you know, get ahead in your job, all of this stuff. And you look at someone like F. Scott Fitzgerald, he was never into the mechanics of it. You know, he had big dreams, much bigger archetypal sort of, and it could have been set anywhere, really. Whereas Sinclair Lewis, uh, William Dean Howells, 
Frank North. A lot of those people were really digging into this is the shit that people are running down right now. And that that wasn't their whole story, but it was it was part of their good journalism background, you know, backdrop. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, too, because the idea of the grifter, as you say, feels very American. And the fact that it has proliferated so vastly through this country and become deeply ingrained in the fabric of our society, it's really pinpointing the the pain point that you and I as artists are suffering from because artists fundamentally are not grifters. We're doing things that, you know, we what we do is a craft. We do put time and energy into it. And it requires, you know, a response from people that's hard to get when people are so used to being grifted. You know, if you don't have that snappy, grifty pitch for people to respond to, they don't understand, they don't even know how to respond to it, you know? So it's created this whole language around things that we do. Well, I think it goes back to, I'm just going to turn down some uh, spaghetti sauce. But I think it goes back to the boldness of fear and love versus their euphemistic smush, because mm-hmm. I think artists are are self-awareedly carnival, as in mm-hmm. carnival, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm, you know, Baudelaire said Americans love nothing more than to be fooled, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's, a, there's a, but the, it's the indirect fire, you know. It, it's the it's a failure to to openly enjoy that uh, and and it's it hinges back on uh, you know we've talked about gimmicks and uh, mm-hmm. my uh, introduction of, of the definition of gimmick is is some way of rigging a uh, some kind of roulette wheel a gaming wheel mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and. So you enjoy gimmicks. You 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 practice that openly, you know, and that's a great role. It's like dishonest John and Pinocchio. What a great part to play, because of mm-hmm. course you're you know you're a shady, melodramatic bad guy. It's when we deny these the truth of these things, and that of course has become the hallmark of true grifters today. You know, they just think they're being so kind, kind and progressive. You know? <laughs> And mm-hmm. a lot of them live where? Seattle. Yeah. That's the problem. That's interesting. That's interesting. I'm going back to your text here. And okay, so let's let's do everything smells like onion rings. Was that a Seattle thing? Or just everything. It's it's everywhere because there we live in one giant sports bar that has eclipsed the corner bar, the lot lost, uh, you know, Shoshone tribal bar, the lost VFW bar. All of these things are kind of, um, unfortunately, they're not all gone. And I, I I did cross some charming places, not because I'm I'm drinking, but because I'm interested in people, and I think that's a great meeting ground, mm-hmm. but. The, I, I noticed there was a commonality. Words like ranch dressing, 
you know, always came up. I got nothing against ranch food, but I don't want to hear about it all the time. Certain smells, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, buffalo wings. And there's always, I mean, I saw so many bizarre sports from sumo wrestling to girls softball to uh, Highland games, not just Major League Baseball and the NBA, you know, not at all. And it's like, there's a diet of, so I started, and I didn't include this in the notes, but I'll I'll mention it now. I started to think of these places in terms of very odd aquariums. You know, you walk into, there's a lot of visual information, you know, the bubbling of the tanks, but there's a lot of olfactory, you know, stuff going on. And you know, if it's not good, there was a place that my niece called Sequest. Uh, I hate to rag on them here in Vegas, but I think they need to be closed down because there was just, I know it's hard to keep even just a normal fish aquarium clean, but this is a, a kid's attraction from, yeah, probably the eighties. It might've started then. And it's just not up to hygienic standard. It's mm-hmm. nothing rank and really rotten or, uh, well, I could go down a whole lot of paths with fish smells and two things in the world smell like fish and one of them's fish. Uh, but you just knew that something was not right about it. And I think that I had this feeling that these, these sports bars that are kind of, they almost feel franchised. And I started to feel for the first, cause I'm a big sports fan. And I really mm-hmm. see a social value and a purpose in having that information up. I think people do want sort of a level of distraction. Oftentimes, big games do draw in business. There's a lot of reason for it. And you get to see these whopping big TVs, which, you know, I didn't, I don't have a big TV in my house. I don't really have a proper TV in that sense. So I understand it. But suddenly, everything began to just smell like onion rings and look like one big blurred sporting event that, it wasn't an art event, was it? Mm, mm-hmm. There is, there's that element to it. So part of me is jealous. And one of the things that came up in in the discussions with artists uh, at the Art Walk, which was, I think, really very successful, but by pretty humble standards, when you think of of these other mass entertainments, the saying was that Seattle isn't an art town; it's a sports town, and. That's not to say it's, that's not including the people who are running in the forest and are super fit and look like they're always going on a hike, you know, at 8,000 feet minimum, you know, it's a different, it's just your ordinary people, but ranch dressing, buffalo wings, Mm -hmm. and not even the big game, but all these talking heads talking about the big, I mean, it's just, it was too much for me. Yeah. I could never get into that kind of stuff either. I like watching sports. They're they're fine. But I could never get into the discussion because how much can you really talk about a football game? You well, watch a football game and it's fun, but you know. Depends how much money you're getting paid to be in these ridiculous right. designer clothes that make these huge guys sort of look kind of hip but businesslike. It's yeah. the tragedy is this is where we've quarantined masculinity in any form. So if you're not into uh, really right. messed up, you've got right. a real problem. But I I like to watch 
a game, like, you know, a big game, but I don't, I can't handle the compound eye of Mm -hmm. like 20 million different things. And, oh, there's that hot waitress again. And she, what does she carry? She's got Buffalo wings and, oh, there's ranch dressing and it's, (laughs) oh, okay. 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 I get it. I'm interested in an elaboration on the, uh, how did you put it? The, the strange informing power of structure with a capital S. Okay. Um, well, this is, is emerging really as, I, I mean, I think it is the deep binary. Uh, we've talked about many ways of looking at the either or subject, object, mind, body, duality that underlies Western culture, which the Eastern religious philosophy views seem to manage duality with a, with a lot more uh, lyrical thinking and language, but I think they resolve them. And it's an interesting sort of tension and oscillation that, that is fundamental to the worldview that has developed uh, there. Whereas I think the West is is forever haunted, fragmented, torn apart, and just can't deal with uh, the duality of structure versus what. And we say it often at form and content. And we talk about this in terms of, of writing. You've probably heard, you know, known many people like this. Well, I've got a good idea for a story. Well, what's the mm-hmm. idea? And it comes out and I say to students, well, that's kind of a mini version of the story. That is a story in its own right, you know? And they go, oh. Right. And I said, well, I don't know if you could sell that if that's what you're, you're talking about, but you don't have anything unless you are actually creatively expressing it. It mm-hmm. just doesn't exist at all. So in that sense, some notion of structural form content, th- those are really simplistic uh, compartmentalizations that don't serve any helpful thinking. They really create problems. And then we get a whole issue of well, structure and form. How do those intersect? And we we talked about architecture. And I was again looking at the skyline of Seattle, which I think is a diabolical mess. I think none of the buildings have the aesthetic impact that I think a city of that magnitude and uh, prosperity at, at that, you know, that business institutional level should have. There are a, t- a ton of them now which are incomplete. And I don't think we'll get really, I, I don't know what the goal is, because I don't think there's going to be business uh, Tennessee. They're not designed for residential use. There's no services in the area. And if they don't watch it, you know, their social environment is, is created such a nightmare of squalor and degradation and violence and danger that I think that all of the investment channels are going to dry up at least in the metro area, the CBD area. But structure, it seems to me, is a very peculiar idea if you try to separate it from any anything else. I mean, it really is the mind-body problem, it just writ larger and larger and larger. Because you say, well, what the structure of the building, well, that is the building. I mean, you can't remove that, the structure of the sentence. Well, where did the sentence go? If you revise the structure, you've got a new sentence. 
if you revise the structure chemically of a body, well, you got some weird things going on potentially, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we've got this really weird insistence that somehow structure or decisions made and that you can kind of dial it, go to your phone, go to the menu, man, you know, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. actually the fact that you are doing anything is the result of a process that is structural and structure is process. It's not static and ossified or incomplete or broken down, degrading or trying to rise up, whatever we see, all of that only makes sense if we look at it in terms of process. The moment you freeze frame structure, you've made, I think, an extremely important uh, tactical mistake in thinking from which you will then make another one because you're not really seeing structure for what it is. And then the second part of that is, and this is what the way I was trained, it's a large part of my education. It's, It's something that, oh, my sister, for example, would do this innately but wouldn't know she's doing it because it's our inherited values, intellectual structures, patterns of education. We look at structure thinking, well, we're looking at it this way. Let's say we're going to take the poem and we're going to break it down. We're going to break it down. Well, other things break down, decompose bodies, you know? Oh, how are we going to recompose that? You know? So we have all those issues of, of a freeze framing and dissecting. And it's just the endless 19th century killing what you're, what you're studying and getting at, at minimum, getting further from what you're really saying you're investigating and not trying to break down the prepositional distance. You're growing it. You're yeah. growing it. Right. I'm reminded of two things. The first is the phrase, uh, structural racism yes you hear a lot and then the second thing is what you're saying feels so true to me in terms of writing because everybody needs a good edit editors exist for a reason i self-edit as i write but you'll see these diagrams i re-watched the movie the silence of the lambs today with my wife it's a great movie And you can go online and find a guy who has broken down every chapter beat by beat by beat to pull the structure of the book out to give you a template for how to create the the perfect thriller novel. His contention is that it's the perfect thriller novel. I think it's a very good thriller novel and an even better movie. I think what they did with that movie was just incredible how they managed to squeeze all that into a hundred minutes or however long it is. But when that is the complete ass backwards way of making a book, I could never write a book that way. Thinking about, well, what's the structure of this? What's the structure of this paragraph? Or as you said, of this sentence, that would, uh, that would take all the, the lust and the blood out of the writing process itself. So The second point is more of an observation, but the first point about structural racism, you talk about the prepositional distance getting further and further. And I think that this is a combination of of an implicit human need to want problems with no real solutions 
and something a bit more sinister in terms of grifters, yet again, creating prepositional distance that's so vast that it's insurmountable so they can keep, you know, exactly. Black, Black Lives Matter, that. dude. Black Lives Matter, just, you know, just 20 more dollars to Black Lives Matter and we'll, you know, we'll fix the structural racism structure. I think that's very well said. You, no one wants a need that can actually be filled or a problem that can be solved if you're in the business of, you know, providing those solutions. But the structural racism thing is a fascinating, uh, very practical example from today. Uh, you also statistically hear the phrase structural comma systemic racism. So systemic, that, yeah. Yeah, that doubled up, you know, yeah. and I've, I've asked people, what does that mean exactly, you know, and the, the you know, the, the I have to, it's so funny, it's so funny, whenever, but, whenever I'm with, because uh, a lot of my friends lean left, and uh, one of my favorite pastimes, when they say any of these kind of things, is to not confront, but to ask questions, like, just pretend I have no idea what they're talking about, and just say, oh, what is that? What is that? You know, put me on game. Explain it to me. I would love to know what that means. And then they will. And it'll be nine times out of 10. It's the really, you know, just bad answer. And I can, my, all my suspicions about them not knowing what they're talking about are confirmed. But, and then you just keep going. You're like, wait, but, and if you play dumb, if you do the, the Beavis and Butthead, Bill and Ted kind of Keanu Reeves, like, whoa, kind of thing, you can, you can Columb- you can Columbo your way into making them think about what they think just by being like, huh, that's well, interesting. That's All of those things derive from from Socrates, really, in that sense. And I should, sure, yeah, yeah sure. It's a great technique, and and I think if you do have some some personal charm and a little bit of of genuine sincerity to mix with the grift. Of knowing full well, yeah, that, yeah, you know, you're yeah. baiting them into uh, a tiger trap. Um, Columbo is the perfect example. You want to act like Columbo. Yeah, yeah. You know? Just one more thing. Yeah. So you said that there's structural racism, but what what exactly are the structures that you're talking about? In in what areas of day to day life do these structures create racists? Well, the, the interesting, if you just take the phrase structural racism, so just lose systemic, that's that that's only more confusion of the same kind. What I think happens, and this has been my experience when I've inquired of people, kind of doing exactly what you're recommending, being as innocent and, and just genuinely sort of, oh, I don't know, you know, could you help <laughs> brother out with this one? I and, just write, I write science fiction books. I've never thought about this. What what it seems to me is that that uh, from a word substitution point of view, what people really mean is institutional racism. I've heard that used too. I, yeah, I, I think more, that it's makes more a lot more sense. Or more they, what what they are distinguishing between is personal racism from an individual point of view of some of individual in power with right. the mechanisms of uh, business, society, finance. Mm-hmm. Uh, say redlining as a or, as a, or not being able to get a loan as a black person. Yeah, kind of thing. yeah. Um, but the, but structural. The other thing, I mean, what they mean is visible. You know, mm. that's another possibility. Well, I would suggest if it's not visible, 
then it doesn't exist. This is the argument. I think structure as a word, structural role, is just an appallingly misused word because it's as if there's more structure to it. Because if you took away the structure, well, you'll still have this invisible sort of weird energy floating around, but it wouldn't have any way to express itself. And right, I, right. Yeah. yeah. What, not, how, I'm not going to believe that. How would you use structural in your vocabulary? What would be the, the more appropriate use of that, of that term? I would use it very specifically in talking about kinds of structures within an idiom or genre of any kind. You know, the structure of the building would be something, you know, how the diagrammatically how it breaks down. It's ultimately reductionist. It's the mm -hmm. means to achieve an end within a set frame. And new structures, if that's possible, create new genre boundaries in any field. They redefine that notion. But I would certainly not mean it to mean real or manifest or um, mm, mm, I, I, I wouldn't actually, um, by capitalizing the S, I think when you talk about structure in that sense, that is the deeply magic uh, David Bohm enfolding order uh, mm -hmm. holism to the world that is inherently metaphysical and right. Right. possibly spirit-based, but deeply mysterious. We should talk about structures and structural in lower S, lowercase terms. Interesting. Interesting. I like that a lot. That's I find it useful to to talk about how examples of how it could be used, just so that, you know, when we're talking about what it's not, as I was thinking about it, I had the passing thought of well, what is it? And I think you clarified that that really well. What do you think is the, you know, the use of structural in the negative sense as something that's kind of inseparable from the thing in itself? But what what do you think is the downstream danger of that? You know, besides being the incorrect usage of the word, what do you think it's doing? I think we get lost in a in a hall of mirrors that we'd never can find our way out of because we don't have any sense that 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 that's what's happened to us. Uh, our our confusion, frustration, and sometimes uh, almost claustrophobic uh, despair is such that we're not able to articulate it in any way. And articulation, which has a lot, you know, it has the sense of the bones, you know, an articulate mm -hmm. skeleton, that ha it has a lot to do with structure and structural. So I think we need to reinvent or revisit the word field around structure and be very careful and where we can be a little bit more precise in what we're talking about so we don't lose ourselves in a, in a lot of confusion. But... I think going back to uh, another theme that we've been exploring of, of the influence of photography uh, on the, the modern age and its relationship to engineering, engineering the future, that I think that we often can construct as in try to predetermine the structure that doesn't exist. You know, I thought another line that I was going to send you today you know, earlier was, is what's the difference between something you can't see and something that hasn't happened yet? 
I mean, you think about oh, that and your head will go. Bang. Depend Depends on who you ask. You ask some people, there is no difference. Yeah. You know, especially when it comes to things like simulation theory. I was watching this great video that was explaining how simulation, the whole world being a simulation could work. And in order to have a computer large enough to power our simulation, just, you know, computing it down to blades of grass and grains of sand, you would need a hard drive the size of a Dyson sphere. You'd need a Dyson sphere, basically, in order to pull that off, unless it worked the way video games worked, where if you're standing on a street in a video game and you're seeing all these buildings, the game is not rendering the interiors of those buildings because that's how it saves on processing power. So if we live in a simulation, then the things that you don't see and that nobody sees don't exist. Don't exist. Back to Bishop Barkley and all sorts of crazy. So, well, see, this is where, and, and you get very peculiar phrases like structurally invisible. Mm. What? 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 Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, really? I mean, that, okay. That is a weird phrase. That's so strange. What context is that used in? Well, I mean, it, it's it's certainly connected with uh, you know elephants in the room, and and oh oh oh, oh. You know, my sometimes I, I I'm I started to use the phrase on this trip of fattening the elephant. Uh, not a question of ignoring the elephant or uh, actually being able to deal with the elephant. Sometimes you're made complicit and you must feed the elephant, grow it, make it be fattened up. Um, that, re that reminds me, I, I spend a lot of time on the linguistics subreddit, which is very interesting. If, you're, if you ever wanted to know why people from Baltimore sound the way they do, that's where you want to go. But they oh. do a word of the day, and it was a Native American word. Unfortunately, I cannot remember the tribe or exactly the word, but the, the word meant uh, feeding someone a snake. And it's when you really dig into somebody, like when you chew them out, feeding, feeding a person a snake. And that you're feeding the elephant reminded me of that. Yeah, well, those are beautiful examples of metaphor that are so rich in meaning. And I, those make me feel really good about the, perhaps the inherent poetry in, in, in the language project, because I think those are really rich and they're a long way from cliche, even if they, you know, they could never get overused enough because they're too vivid, I think. But to go back to like it, an explanation of, I think what structure, you know, one way to think of it was the, the conflict in the parking lot where yeah. here I, I'm having social interactions with a group of people, strangers, we're focusing our attention on the abstract issues of money, reserving the parking space, dealing with a complicated system which is brand new and doesn't have any logic behind it. In fact, isn't finally working. It's not working any better than the mecha physical mechanical thing of taking your card, which is broken, you know, like a, any kind of machine, any kind of, you know, vending machine, a reinvented vending machine that someone just smashed. We're focusing all the attention on that. Meanwhile, some really, really dire things, life and death stuff is happening very close by. 
And that biologically should have commanded all our attention. Interesting. Interesting. So you think if, if those unnecessary systems and, and structures, if you will, hadn't been in place, you, we as people could better focus on those things. It's kind of everything is this new shiny bobble that we're moving toward. Bobble's not my secret word, by the way. Uh, <laughs> we're we're moving towards these things and we're no longer able. I mean, it goes back to the roads and the working on cars and building things and manufacturing versus the grift. It's all the same thing. You know, we can't focus on the real problems that are happening nearby. If you want to know why homelessness is out of control. The answer is right in those cities like San Francisco and Seattle, where they're the most prevalent, which is the, the tech sector. Spiritually, the tech sector is causing that problem, right? I'm not saying they literally put fentanyl in the hands of homeless people, but they might as well for all the good. Exactly. Doing. And I think that that's a, I think you left that really with an interesting, you know, ellipsis, a dot, dot, dot. And sometimes things really are what they what they you know appear to be, and there's it's right really there structural yeah. depth. I mean, there is no rule or law that uh, a female server waitress at a bar has to be particularly good looking or look a certain way. Mm -hmm. However, I think if you go into a gym and you're paying a significant amount for a monthly membership, I don't think that it's really credible to have really overweight instructors trainers you know i i just don't I, whereas i think if you had a you know for instance a disabled person that could be a very powerful inspirational mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. someone who's a paraplegic um, working on the machines you know that could be really really powerful so there are some structural things that are simply there's no hidden thing behind them you know, this is my point about what, what we mean by structure. There isn't uh, a story behind the description of the story. The description of the story is all that the story is presenting at the moment. Young writers don't have, you know, if they have great ideas. Well, you know what? They have great ideas. Mm -hmm. And maybe someone will listen to them, but they're, they're really nothing. So structure is isness. Oh, ooh. Structure is isness. I'm gonna have to think about that one. I feel like we're like Bill Clinton when he said, "I need to know what the definition of is is." Like now, I need to know the definition I of is. Do not is. have sexual relations with that woman. Wow. That woman. Well, I want to for next time. I really want to pick up with this last thing. Um, living for the photograph. Consider the relationship in light of who takes the photos. I think that's really interesting. But do you want to hear my my inverse? I treasure do, hunt? and I think I'm glad you liked it because that's exactly what I was. I sort of saved that to the end because hoping you would pick up on it because I think that connects us back to our photographic theme, but also has a lot to say about relationships and compartmentalization and how structures are defined and therefore how they determine other forms. So, yes, tell us about the inverse treasure hat. All right. Money's no object. So I can hire people to get these things for me. The first item 
that I have hidden. You want to you want me uh, where I hid it too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's as, an important way to picture as you can. Yeah. Okay. So the very first item that I've decided to hide is the Bigfoot costume used in the Patterson Gimlet 1967 iconic Bigfoot footage, and I have hidden it I in, love a, that. in a spirit Halloween in Northern California. The second item is a quartz crystal skull that was supposedly discovered in Mesoamerica, but has been hidden in the church in the rock in Eder Oberstein, Germany. The, the third is a piece of the Apollo 11 shuttle Ooh. that's been made into a coffee table and hidden on a soundstage in Los Angeles. The link between all of these three is I'm taking items from famous hoaxes and returning them to their point of origin. Oh, David, I think that is just beautiful. I really do. Not only because I love conspiracies and love sort of the, the, the weirdly sacred objects and artifacts and religious mementos that grow up around them. But I think that's a beautiful idea of returning them to context. And context has a great deal to do with structure, a great deal to do with it, to tie back into our overall theme. But I just enjoyed really, really listening to those words, the specific nature of them, the magical quality of them purely as language. And I'd suggest that in microcosm, which is also another very powerful ancient way of thinking about structure. And it, it's a suggested link into David Bohm's wonderful book about the implicate order. Uh, that's a real lovely microcosm for the postmodernist mindset. Certainly as a novelist, I identify with that fully. If if someone said to me, well, look, you know, you started certainly you started off as with your goal as a, as a writer on, on a fairly on a broad fiction level. One of the things that I was trying to do is exactly what you just performed. And I think that's gorgeous. And I think cool. those points are beautiful. Awesome. Uh, yeah, you got to really do something with that. that. You got to do yeah. something. You just did. You just did. I know. But right. uh you know, I'm just going to leave it. I think you just did something very powerful and fun and cool with it. And listeners, I think we'll pick up on that. Awesome. Well, I'm really glad you dug it. I had a lot of fun working with that one. You know, I love conspiracies too. And I am, in fact, uh, compiling these. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do with them yet, but I do have a compilation of sort of the greatest hits, the uh, the semantically void corporate speak and the the Aztec Viking, all the ones that that you've really cheered on. Uh, the specificity, though, I think, in terms of writing, those are the two most important things: are specificity and clarity. And I think that you can play with both of them. There's no hard and fast, 100% of the time rules, but largely, uh, you know, that's what I find in in your writing, and I'm finding in the writing of these you know, science fiction cats who I'm going back and, and find, I had never read Neuromancer before, you know? Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And what surprises me is I'd always thought of science fiction as 
you know, kind of like Charles Strauss. I made the critical mistake when I was a young man of, of purchasing Accelerando, uh, the Charles yeah. Strauss book, and found it so dense and so unappealing that it turned me off from the genre. For, and it took PKD to get me back into it because here was a guy who was writing in a very clear, uh, dare I say, accessible way. And I realized, oh, a lot of these dudes were actually, and girls, right, were actually, their their job as they saw it as science fiction writers was to make some of these complex ideas palatable and interesting on a paragraph and sentence level. So I'm happy to hear that you enjoyed that on a word by word, sentence by sentence basis, because I think if you nail that, I mean, what's going to stop you from, from being a writer? That's the trick, right? The, the trick is the, is the sentence. If the structure is really solid, you have to start asking, well, where, where's the problem? Mm-hmm. You know, whereas if the structure isn't solid, I mean, don't you have only problems? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, 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 that's, that's a beautiful uh, fit in with our, our discussion of, of structure, what the boundaries for that conceptual idea is and how confused it is so that thank you that that would be a fun treasure hunt to go on and i i think also in doing it you clearly uh i think you've sketched out who might be in that game you know Mm -hmm. and it's it's everyone that you want to know you know and it's it's your possible readers it's your it's it's our cohort in that sense so no well done um, cool. Do you have a tip for us today? Uh, I'm going to start with the, the bigger one, the tool. The and tool. This yeah. is really hard. This is really hard, but I think it's something really important. Uh, you know, tools doesn't mean when you discover one, it doesn't mean you're going to be uh, proficient with it. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's not the promise of it. But I had a lot of conversations over the course of my road trip, and some of them I really actively uh, initiated. I'm just a chatty. Chatty, uh, Kathy. Yeah, I am. <laughs> and I, I think I managed to elicit some responses and get some storytelling and engagement with people that, you know, no one else might have. And I think um, we I did talk about that a little bit, but I I really then contrasted that with conversations that one has has forced upon one and uh some of the difficulties that that come up and i ended up just blurting into my uh voice memo my phone try to listen to everyone as if they were a stranger i don't know if i touched on that before or not but i i i I seemed it's been resonating around my head and i i I listened to the end of the last episode. I kind of thought I'd gotten to that then, but I, I want to relay that out now because it is very difficult to do that. Of course it is. Mm-hmm. And yet, if you were to give it a really sincere, good faith try, I think you might become a little bit more alert to the distinction you're making. And here the importance is on what your, your personal distinction of a stranger, which seems a clearer category sort of to work with, and people you know. What does that mean? What do you mean when you you say, well, I know them? And I think 
we start to look at posture and facial details, the state of people's body, alertness, physicality, structure, what's manifest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We really start to look closely at what is called kairos. The Greeks called kairos, the occasion, the, the context. And of course, we're looking at tonality and motivation and transactional goals, but we're doing that with people we know too. I mean, we're all doing that with our husbands and wives or girlfriends and boyfriends and teachers and bosses and everything. But I think that it, it's really the context that becomes suddenly vivid again, because the people we know sink into context and the context becomes invisible. Mm-hmm. And I, I know a lot of career teachers and they just cannot get with a basic thing that Walker Percy puts forward. Well, the classroom is not transparent. It's mm-hmm. not a transparent, you know, what if the kids are picking or students are picking up on smells. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that the way people say something is more important than what they're saying. Correct, yeah. Uh, on and on and on we go. And I think all of these are ways of reconnecting with what structure actually means. So that's I like that a lot. Cool. Yeah. And yeah. It, it is very difficult to perform, but I really, it's something I'm really working hard on because it came up so pointedly on my road trip. And I think we are spoken to by the world when we're away from home, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Especially on a road trip where most of the people you encounter, well, a significant amount of the people you encounter are also away from home. Possibly. See, that's an, see, you know, already you're asking these questions that otherwise get completely assumed and start, you know, are really invisible or not existent. And I think that is the powerful lesson. So listen, try to listen to everyone as if they were a stranger, because of course, in some way we all are, you know, absolutely. Um, But here's the tip I wanted with that big and difficult tool in mind, I wanted to have a really practical tip that is out of outside any box and is a a really interesting technique. Okay, you can do this on your phone. But the Mm -hmm. next time you go out for a night, whether you're going to see a show or have a meal out or you're doing something special, something a little bit outside your routine, whether you're with a partner, friends or alone, Try to take a few photographs of that evening. You need a few to work with. I I really would like to see people have five to six to seven over the course of an evening. They don't have to be great. They certainly don't have to be beautifully composed. That's not the point. But try to document the evening without having that process totally interrupt the evening. Okay? Wait 24 hours and then do this. Out of your one to seven photographs, can be more, I want you to choose two, two photographs that in your view are the most different, okay? Mm-hmm. You can let the what defines that difference be a little bit vague. It could be mood, tone, time. Uh, there are lots of reasons for that, but... What we want is a really sharp crossroads binary that someone who wasn't there, wasn't with you, can look at it and go, well, those are, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Let it sit another day. 
and something very peculiar will happen. The differences will start to vanish. You will see far more underlying connection. And there are good reasons for that because the photographer is the same. You're the nexus point. You took them. Yeah. It is a very peculiar thing because it gets to the heart of what we mean when things differ. I mean, you think of it, that's the biggest question there is. How does that right. work? Right. It's boundary lines, it's divisions. But here we have, I think, some, some assumptions made about the notion of difference that are in very abstract categorical terms that with just a little bit of time away, but something really definite to look at, tangible, structural, you will see presumed and pre-assumed differences melt away. One of the most interesting things, if you've ever gotten into an argument with somebody who does this all the time, is when you bring up a point and they respond with, well, that's different. Look, is, is it? And, and then I start, I, 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 I start thinking of talking like this because I'm not <laughs> It's just like there's, oh, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. that's really cool. I'm going to do that. I'll do that when we go to Tulsa on Saturday. It's a great, it's a great time and, and keep it simple, but yep. watch what happens. And, you know, the important thing with the tips, I think, is that I, I hope they apply to everyone, but the applicability really makes sense and has value on a very personal targeted basis. Yeah, that's the key. Yeah. Have you been dreaming? Okay. I, I This is from one night of very strange sleep. I had been taking, uh, not drinking coffee. I'd been taking stay awake caffeine pills earlier Ooh. today while I was driving. I'd been through a lot of weird weather and I was at a Best Western motel in Baker City, Oregon, and I had a very, very jangly sleep that covered this terrain. Hmm. First element was turnips, which is not something you think about, hear about, dream about. And, and I don't like turnips, so I don't eat them. It's an odd thing to eat. Yeah. I thought, what was going on? It, just, it, it was a motif that went through. Well, it connects for me with my stepfather, who is the ghost that's the closet I was living in at my mom's house. It's really a kind of graveyard museum to him, sadly, because she just doesn't have the uh, any more space. And she just doesn't want to let go because those things have sentimental value. But he had an incident uh, when back when he was still presumably still pretty you know, active and fit in uh, Australia when he visited my then wife. And he got he's fixated on having turnips for lunch. And to me, it was a sign that there was really something quite significant, you know, already right. in play. It also ties in with James Dean's death site in Central California. And one of my best pieces of writing is my leaving home at 17 at 3 a.m. in the morning and a never to return home, really. Um, and I mysteriously felt a deep imperative to go visit that site on the way from where I lived to LA, where it's just where mm -hmm. I was starting my adventure. The, the reason it ties into is because the guy who who ran, who effectively caused the accident, had the very peculiar last name of Turnup Speed. 
I mean, that's as strange as it gets. It's Pinchonian. Uh, what? Pinchonian. Yes, it is. Totally. Yeah, it absolutely is. And it was, uh, that's one of my best uh, pieces of writing. And it's in uh, the Lost Explorers Handbook. So Turnips and James, the, the my stepfather beginning to lose his faculties, my first real leaving of home. Uh, then there was a, a thing where my artwork was being stored at a hotel uh, resort. You know, like when you leave your luggage, you checked out of the place, and but you, you know, you leave it with the concierge. Well, this concierge figure was just absolutely grotesque. A very large, uh, deformed face custodial figure who somehow had this job and, and I wouldn't have thought of. Well, he kept accusing me that my my paintings had blood. They were made with blood mm-hmm. and evidence, DNA evidence of crimes. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of a creepy sort of Dickensian villain figure. Mm-hmm. And he, like he was trying to leverage some power. Over me. And I, I kept saying, no, no, look, it was just part of this art exhibit. There's no, they're not made with blood, you know. And if they were, they'd be made with my blood. It's not some. So that was as part of that, though, there was a group of strange, rich dudes dressed as 1920s dandies mm-hmm. as part of some club. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't like them. And their outfits were religiously presented as full historic costumes. And yet they were evil, white, rich shitheads from today. And it was mm-hmm. just not a good vibe. Anxiety. I had a dream about my neighbors <laughs> who I left to look after my yeah. house. And yeah. when I returned, they had all these keloids and boils and sometimes goiters, you know, and they're lovely people. And she's really just very attractive. And they're just lovely. And they did a great job. So I don't know why I, I, I had that. And as I was thinking about that, so coming to consciousness, I said, Jesus, that's a terrible to think about these lovely people. You know, they're probably just, you know, innocently, you know, doing exactly what I asked. And I thought, you know, maybe I am a little bit, you know, not crazy, but I'm, I don't think I should leave myself alone. I'm glad I'm looking after myself because it wouldn't be safe to leave me completely on my own. And so I wake up with this real sense of the hauntedness, the double, and and maybe that just needs to be there because you just really, I wouldn't feel, I wouldn't feel morally right just leaving me wandering around without me on board looking after things. So that was my dream scene. I love the line. I shouldn't leave myself alone. <laughs> <laughs> it's so I gotta, I gotta, I gotta watch. I gotta keep an eye on myself. The way that I have to keep an eye on my my toddler, you know, it's like I gotta, I can't let myself out of my sight. Or well, that's or exactly. <laughs> it appeared with such beautiful clarity, as simple-minded as it as it may sound. It really hit home to me, and I think it's true. Hmm. No, I love that. I also thought it was interesting in your dream that there's this grotesque uh, liminal figure, the hotel concierge being one of the classic liminal figures, who is accusing you of using blood 
in your paintings. And then you see the dandies. <clears throat> Seems to me like those might be representations of the anti-art fish tank that we're living in right now. People who either see your art as satanic, evil, morally wrong uh, versus people, you didn't mention that these guys wanted to necessarily buy your art, but they are these representations of people who have uh, spent their, their shit hit money on looking the way that they do. Yes. You yeah. see what I'm saying? I no, do. I well, I think that's a beautiful read of them. And, and I think without, so I didn't give you that much to work with on the dandies, but I think that what, what you're saying is that here are people who by rights should be not connoisseurs, but more engaged and patrons. really super. Yeah. Patrons. Well said. Mm -hmm. And really all they are is superficially pursuing some really stupid, weird little club thing that could change tomorrow with new costumes, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. All right. That'll do it for today. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks everyone. And, uh, you know, it is great to be home. And I realize again that, that home is, you know, in part really what we, what we take with us. And part of that is connections with people. And the connection with listeners is very important to both David and myself. So thank you. See you next time.